Welcome to Direction Correct, a people's podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Nicholas Brenner. Thanks to our sponsors, Worklytics. Generate actionable insights from work data while protecting your privacy using workplace analytics with our partners, Worklytics. Do you know uh, who Robert Hogan is? Like the Hogan assessment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So he, they have, Hogan has a podcast and they had him on as a guest tar- talking about Carl Jung. And he was talking about how Jung's most famous finding was the collective unconscious. And I was saying earlier that basically LLMs are turning into an understanding of humanity is collective unconscious. But you, if you just parsed it down to like people who are living in like the mountains versus the Amazon versus different areas, you could probably find very different kind of traits about humanity just based on like geographies and stuff like that. That's fascinating. Know. And you get a sense of like, like what a society's gestalt is and how it's changing over time, depending mm-hmm. on yeah. like when the data is being collected. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a giant, like, uh, I don't know, filter yeah. of society. Like, just everything gets collected and yeah, kind yeah. of spit back at you. I think the one thing that's going to hold this back, though, obviously, is, like, the data collection and availability problem. Like, you're talking about people in different regions. Some are more connected than others. There's going to be a bias towards data on, you know, certain groups of people because we actually have data on that that you can yeah. turn it on, right? Other groups, you will have little to no data on. And so it won't be representative of the whole population, necessarily. Absolutely. Well, hey, do you want me to introduce you really quick, Nicholas? Sure. I mean, so Nicholas is an industrial organizational psychologist and people analytics practitioner with over 12 years of experience, currently leads people decision science at Uber, holds a master's in management science from Telfer School of Business. Am I saying that correctly? Yep. And the, at, at the University of Ottawa and a PhD in IO psychology from Western University. You've published in peer-reviewed books and journals on leadership, followership, personality and employee commitment but the thing i wanted to talk to you about is didn't you used to have a podcast yeah i did um i started a podcast with a a friend of mine jose uh close to i think right after i graduated Um, what was it called called mind your work okay um and basically our thing was we would take peer-reviewed literature we would do a mini lit review and then we would summarize it um, because like we were both very practi- like very um, passionate about like the um, like the scientist practitioner gap. Yeah. And we're like, hey, translation is something we're very, we're very passionate about. Um, let's go and do that. So we did that podcast for I think about two two years or so. It's been a little while since we've we've shut it down just because it is an immense amount of work to it do is. a lit review and then cover the topic and <laughs> like, like be intelligent about it. For every Honestly, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we just we just couldn't keep it up, honestly. But oh my God. it's it so was hard fun. to like stay up to date. Otherwise, like yeah. I think this is a great mechanism that we have to marginally stay up to date yeah. with what's going on. Like, yeah. we're not even as in depth as you could be in academia. Clearly, yeah. I mean, it's just it's not sustainable, right? I mean, it it was great in the sense that like it helped me continue reading scientific literature yeah. after I graduated and keep up to date on things. But I mean, eventually, you know, once I had library access revoked, doing lit reviews became <laughs> a little more difficult. Well, we've talked and... about Google Scholar being the only place you can go. That basically becomes your only method at that point. It is. It yeah. is. Or you just like search for that like free PDF. Like you're like, yeah. okay, well, I guess this is the study I'm going with. Yeah. How good is that feeling though? Oh, it's wonderful. You find the one free PDF of exactly what you're looking for. I'm like, <laughs> this is divine. Thank you, kind soul out there that made this available for free. Well, yeah. here's a trick. I don't know if you guys have done this 
before, but if you do know an article is written by like uh, a famous professor or something like that, go look at their their website and yeah. their beta, and usually they have PDFs of all their articles, so you can find them there. Yeah, a lot yeah. of the uh, journals will give you access to spread amongst your own network, which I guess mm-hmm. is what they're doing. They're putting on their personal mm-hmm. website, yeah, which exactly. is like Google Scholar, this sort of thing. What I've been doing, I've been doing lately is, uh, so I, I keep track of like scientific literature, like through email push notifications and stuff through like mm-hmm. key journals. And a lot of it is not open access. I will just email the first author. I'll oh, go nice, to every single nice. website That's and just email hack. them. Power move. Yeah. And nine out of 10 times they'll respond pretty quickly. I'll be like, I'm a practitioner. I'm interested in this because we're doing work in the space. And they're normally delighted to talk to someone. Oh, yeah in the field who's doing something. Exactly. <laughs> and they're like, let's set up a call. Let's chat about it. Like, it works out very well yeah. oftentimes. Remember this paper you wrote three years ago? Yeah. Like, I need that yeah. access to it. I was talking to uh, Amy Edmondson at a uh, conference several years ago. And I was like, nice name drop. Yeah, yeah. You know, whatever. <laughs> well, check this out. This is even bigger. Uh, and I was like, you know, like, this article you wrote on, you know, psychological safety or whatever. And she's like, ah, there's been so many. I forget. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which I was like, that's a power move. Yeah, for sure. She's, like, she's done a ton of stuff in the space. And I mean, she's, she's a really good example of like a scientist practitioner who's really bridged absolutely. that gap completely yeah. and has had a lot of success in both. She became domains. like TED Talk famous and yeah. stuff. Yeah, exactly. What, what, what articles do you enjoy? Like what, what do you gravitate towards? What do I gravitate towards? Like um, on, the, on the podcast or otherwise? I mean, I've got pretty diverse interests in terms of, like, IOPsych. I mean, these days I, I focus on stuff that um, is useful for my work. Um, when, yeah. So I was very O-focused in my IO psychology career, and so um, touched a little bit on job analysis and training and, and selection, but I was mostly into, like, the employee engagement, leadership sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I gravitate towards articles like that. Um, if there are new, like, theoretical models or things like that, I find those fascinating to read about. It, it's shocking when you have a project based on, you know, IO models, and you all of a sudden, like, you start reading a bunch of IO model literature, you know? It's wild, yeah, actually. Yeah. You yeah. apply it. Mm-hmm. Was that where the decision science part of your job comes in, or is that separate? That's, that's or is actually that more like the evidence-based HR part? I, I kind of see it all as, as, as fitting together. Um, so, like, yes to your question. One, one of the things, so I'll back up a little bit. Um, decision science, the way I kind of frame it at Uber, um, me and my team basically try and interact with leaders and other like functional partners. When they come to a point where they have to make a decision, we try and assemble like all the appropriate evidence to help them make the appropriate decision. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. For, I mean, first of all, it's about like confirming that something that they've identified as a problem is actually a problem in the first place. Because someone yeah. can say like, hey, we have an issue with you know this training program, yeah. but it could be hearsay. And so like the first step is really confirming. Um, I mean, first is making sure they're asking the right question, but then translating into, okay, is it a problem? Um, and to figure out if something's actually a problem, it's about kind of weaving in, you know, four different sources of evidence, like the scientific literature being one of them, where it's available. Oftentimes it's, sometimes there isn't stuff in the literature that's like applicable to the problem we have on hand, unfortunately, um, or it's too kind of like high in general. Um, but then you've got like stakeholder concerns, so like talking to people in the organization, understanding them, uh, organizational data. I sit in people analytics, so like that's our, our bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then any professional expertise of uh, you know myself, my team, and other people we talk to, and weaving all that together um, to basically help it, to confirm like is this a problem, and then make a decision, and then evaluate the decision you made was the right one, was it not? 
it's generally the, the process that I, I think through. Can I ask a dumb but hard question? Yes, please. How do you know when a decision is being made to need decision science? That is a hard question. It's, um, it's a dumb question, but a hard one, I know. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's not a dumb question. It's, yeah. it's, it's a really good one. Um, so the way I think about it, this is a kind of a false dichotomy because the decisions sit in between these, but like you have simple kind of routine decisions okay. that you have to make repeatedly. Like transactional decisions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like the outcome's important, but it's fairly routine. It happens often. Um, like credit actuaries are really good at, you know, producing models to help like decide is this person, are, are they approved or are they not, right? It's just like automated decisions at this point. Exactly, yeah. And that's actually a big part of the field of decision science um, is putting together risk models to make decisions at scale in a more automated fashion. Then you have the other category decisions, which is like novel, strategic, big decisions that require a lot of analysis and gathering evidence and things like that. Yeah. Um, typically, like, that's, that's our domain. Okay. Um, and so... Yeah, so you're not doing a bunch of like nudge-based decisions on a bunch of transactions that are occurring. You're just helping when like a big, you know, I'm just throwing an example out there, like yeah. remote versus in-person kind of decision. That's a huge strategic decision. You're helping provide data and evidence on those type of decisions. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Yeah. Have you ever uh, read uh, Hubbard's book, How to Measure Anything? No, I haven't. Oh, that's what it, Scott's favorite. It is, it is. I talk about it every like four weeks or something like that. Yeah. But essentially he talks about uh, what, what is the role of measurement and it's uh, reduction of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So you come into a situation, it's like, I don't know what to do. And like, just because, ju- just the fact that you can reduce the uncertainty a little bit improves you greatly. Because yeah. before you had like no idea, should we go left or right? I don't know. Yep. But having a bit of measurement, you can put some parameters around it to improve the actual decision-making quality. Yeah. That, that's the whole goal there. Isn't that a Hofstede's yeah. dimension too? Like uncertainty reduction? Hofstede dimension? Yeah, like a cultural dimension. Remember the eight cultural dimensions? Oh, God. So oh. you got like collectivistic versus independence yeah. and... Uh, but I think uh, like the ability to deal with uncertainty is like one of those. I think it's like uncertainty avoidance or something. Or uncertainty avoidance or yeah, something yeah. like that. I, I may be pulling that out of my butt, but... Yeah, I mean, in HR, like, we have incomplete information. Uncertainty avoidance. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah. What's what's Dude, the definition of check it? Check out the big brain on coal. Yeah, yeah, got, association. got those big brains. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got power distance, uncertainty avoidance, uh, individualism slash collectivism, uh, masculinity, femininity, femininity, short versus long-term orientation, and then... Uh, the Google little blurb ran out and I couldn't yeah. read anymore. It's like, pay more to read on. Nope, <laughs> not happening. Free PDF. Thank you very much. Yeah. Absolutely. I forget the definition of uncertainty avoidance. I'd like the power distance, individualism, collectivism are pretty, pretty popular. It sounds like there's the overlap there, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, but what, what does decision science mean? How does it differentiate itself from, like, regular people analytics? It's... It's a good question. So there's there's not a, a clear line, I would say. So I mean, when when our team kind of took the the form it does now, the mantle, um, the, the mantle, <laughs> it took the mantle of decision science. Took the mantle. I was I was the first person in people analytics at Uber to take on that title. Um, in, inherited essentially from from uh, the alt model they created, and I think there was some some work that I had to do to kind of research exactly like what that would look like and how to operationalize that within a people analytics team. Because um, we have other folks at Uber with decision science roles that are radically different from mine. It's so, just a dis- different 
application of the same science. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, using different statistical techniques, obviously the data is very different as well. Mm -hmm. um, but so when I, when I took on the role, I, I thought about, um, okay, it's, it's about helping people make better decisions. I thought about people analytics and organizations with my background in IOSYC and like what kinds of data do we have available? Yeah. And then I gravitated towards the, the evidence-based management framework um, that Rob Briner really champions. There's a Center for Evidence-Based Management that champions it as well. Um, and so did a lot of reading on that um, and tried to basically kind of take that model yeah. and apply it. With Sorry, I'm just like a caveman. What is the evidence-based oh, analytics so, model? Yeah. So evidence-based practice originated, I believe, in medicine. Yeah. And so there's been a group, um, I think, with, with a mixed series of backgrounds, some, some in economics, some in psychology and others, who basically took that model and they wanted to apply it to management by saying, okay, if we're going to engage in certain management practices, we need evidence to support their efficacy. Yeah. And so how do we go about doing that, right? We want to continue making better decisions. And so this is a model that appealed to me. I kind of took it on and, and it goes beyond <coughs> organizational data. And I think like some people analytics teams in more nascent stages might start with reporting, might start just with data. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really about understanding that data, but then also what literature and external data we have available yeah. in addition to the people who are actually using that data because decisions are, are not made in a vacuum. They're made in a, a cultural context. Yeah, and that yeah. cultural context is equally as important as the data itself. It's like the uh, Burke model, right? Where it's like you have like the internal factors and like expands all the way out to the external environment that impacts everything. Well, I think because I've seen Rob Reiner stuff and mm -hmm. by the way, just call out like another like top five hair guy and, <laughs> and like he's had fantastic hair. But... Uh, I, I, this is a few years old. And remember we were talking about earlier about like how I have like random things that stick in my brain. I remember yeah, yeah. this from a few years ago. He has like a, a pyramid or a hierarchy of like kinds of evidence and those on the bottom are like bad and you get better the higher you go in the hierarchy. Mm. And I remember the bottom of the hierarchy, which I thought was really interesting, is just people's opinions. And I was like, usually we, we disregard that as like non-evidence. But he's saying like, no, there is probably some truth in people's opinions. Yeah. yeah. It's just bad, <laughs> you know, it, and, and usually, you know, full, has of, some, bias full and... of bias, but mm -hmm. there's still some truth in there. And I was like, okay, that's the bottom of the hierarchy and you move up and you get to kind of like what you were saying about from the medical field of, yeah. you know, this is where you know where you've gotten to like randomized controlled trials and things like that. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> um, and the whole kind of like evidence source of professional expertise, when you're untrained and you're inexperienced, it's just an opinion. But when you've seen a situation over and over again yeah. and, you know, you've, you've gotten feedback on the result and, you know, it's, it's a fairly kind of stable thing, um, yeah. not a, like every situation, not totally different. You actually start to form expertise around like I've seen this before. Mm -hmm. um, I anticipate it's going to work out the same way. And you develop sort of a, yeah, not, not an intuition, so to speak. But yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got a nerdy question about this, and, and it's fine if you don't know the answer because I'm basically asking as if you were like a person who researched this all the time, and maybe you do. Is there any like ironclad evidence-based management research, <laughs> or is everything kind of lacking in one way or another? Or context-specific, yeah. too. Like, is there any like universal truths that we know or like, all right, this is always the case in management science? I don't know. It depends. I don't know. It, yeah. Honestly, like, it's, it's the golden it depends. There's yeah. so many contingencies and so many boundary conditions that yeah. um, 
yeah, I don't know. I think there's there's associations that apply broadly. Like, I mean, there's certain IO psychology findings that I find myself citing very Coming frequently. back to it over and over again. Yeah, yeah like the yeah. whole distributive justice, um, procedural, procedural justice, justice distinction, right? It's like, it's as long as the process is fair, even if you didn't get what you wanted, you're not going to be as unhappy, right? I love that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, even stuff like uh, intent to stay is probably one of the best measures we have, like 0.5 correlations depending on the person's ability, and yeah. the external environment, this sort of thing. Even that is only 0.5 correlation, 25% mm-hmm. of the total variance. But it's still pretty good if you consider... Oh, like, it's fantastic. I mean, turnover attrition, it happens for so many reasons. Some yeah. are uncontrollable by the organization, some are. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a hard event to predict inherently. Yeah, I, I had a uh, behavioral scientist I used to work with. We were producing this uh, um, predictive attrition model. And I was telling her about this, like, you know, intent to stay. And she found some study, and it really pissed me off. <laughs> I like where this is going already. <laughs> well, it's like someone, like, uh, took intent to stay items, and they factored in, like, uh, co-worker relationships, your relationship with your manager, uh, tenure, uh satisfaction like everything you could imagine and like at the end after they controlled for all these variables it's like intent to stay didn't predict anything she's like see look it, yeah, it doesn't matter all the factors exactly you took yeah. away everything why why someone would leave you took away all those factors and all of a sudden yeah. you've got like some numbers on the page i mean i guess what they're sort of proving is that all of those are highly correlated with one another and that is true. you take out all the correlational variants it's like nothing's left at that point yeah i mean if you're if your intent is to explain the most variance possible, then good job. But yeah. if your intent is to like explain what's actually going on here yeah. and interpret it, then it's, that's not gonna work. And that's a great point. It's a cautionary tale for how much you actually control for an organization, because you could control for a lot in your yeah. analyses and come up with uh, ostensibly null findings. Yeah. I, did, I did wanna come back to something that I wanted to ask you. Do you have any advice for us about doing a podcast? <laughs> we can learn from you, oh, a wise one. <laughs> I mean, I would... <clears throat> what are we doing wrong? Yeah. Well, don't start there. I mean, <laughs> is that advice? I'll tell you just what you're doing wrong. Yeah. Um, Critique us. Yeah. I, I can tell you something that you guys did right immediately. Um, don't do the editing yourself. Uh, well, <laughs> we well, actually did yeah. do that. No, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, okay. That was a later um, learning. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean... Jose did all the editing for Mind Your Work. Um, it is an immense amount of work, as, is, as you guys know. Yeah. yeah, and we so we can thank Scott for that in the beginning. He did a lot of work, and he did good work. I'm, thanks, Scott. Scott was everyone high should, quality. Yeah, everyone should praise me. Yes, <laughs> I do constantly. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm curious to know what your experience is like with with the format and having guests and everything. And, and did you guys not have guests? No, we didn't. It was oh, so. This is okay. one of the reasons why it was so labor intensive. Is that it was just the two of us. We would summarize the literature. Um, we'd come up with like a roadmap of different episodes, yeah. different things we wanted to, to talk about, do the research, summarize it. Yeah. Um, and then we would come up with a kind of transcript or story around what we wanted to talk about, bring okay. in personal examples and everything. So we were carrying the, the full load essentially. Um, we, well, we never had guests on. And we'll come back to storytelling in a second, but I think you had a question for us about around the podcast or something. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm curious, like, how how it's been, like, what are some of the kind of highs and lows and balancing it with your with your work as well? And mm-hmm. Some Definitely haven't there. figured that out. <laughs> no? No, that's still a challenge. Um, it does kind of take over our lives. At I, I think the way we set it up immediately makes it a lot easier because it's just a conversational mm-hmm. format. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, just it's just meant to be uh, 
open conversation that you would have with any other IO. When our name get, gave us a get out of jail free card, yeah, that's on true. a lot of things. What do you mean? Well, we're directionally correct. We're not correct correct. No, <laughs> on sure? the money. Yeah, we're not on the money almost ever. Yeah. <laughs> We're People not mind like your though. work. Yeah. 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 We we set very high expectations for ourselves <laughs> in terms of precision. Uh, I mean, but I mean, we've gone through, I mean, it's, it's a good like microcosm for like yeah. an organization. We went through like kind of uh, forming, norming, storming. We had a lot of disagreements. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like that's kind of the things I don't even think the audience picked up on or mm-hmm. knows about at all. Like we've gone through some real ringers before trying to figure out like what is this thing going to be? What's it not going to be? How do we stay true to ourselves? And yeah. that's really the hardest part because you get like scope creep. Yeah, yeah you know? that is true. And and then you're, you're just like, well, I thought we were just going to do this cool small thing. And now it's like become this big thing that's kind of like a lot of work. <laughs> like, well, how are we going to navigate that? And we, we've had to like adjust our schedule too because yeah. it's, yeah. it's, that makes sense. I think now we're what, four weeks on and a week off. Yeah. Something like that. We, I think one time we went like 10 straight weeks. It's it's like waves. And I think we went to kill each other yeah. at the end of it. Yeah. And I love Scott. Like, I mean, we get we obviously have good rapport and everything, but it's like at the end of it, you're just like, this is not fun at the moment. <clears throat> but yeah. we always wanted to stay fun. And I, I think, I don't know if you agree with this, but I'm having fun with it. So Absolutely. And there's a lot of, uh, not, not to make this all about us or anything like that, uh, but th- there's like reinforcing moments where like, we're, we're here at Tal Reos, and yeah. like, people know who Cole is, they know who I am, they mm-hmm. talk about us. Make or fun of us. Make fun of <laughs> us. You, you have a reputation. Yeah, really. definitely. Yeah. Or uh, I'll, I'll just recount the story again. Like, I was at PSYOP, and uh, someone stopped me in the hallway after PSYOP. And it's like, I live in Switzerland, and my kids love you. They, they, really? Yeah, they said... Uh, uh, you, you talk about math in a fun way. That's how they learn mm. English, too. It's like, yeah. holy moly. I mean, like, how cool is that? I've never That's had awesome. a yeah. moment like that in my life. You can learn a lot about English words for Texas and Bucky's and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> All the important things. A couple curse words sprinkled <laughs> yeah. in here, you know? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. No, it's, it's important for, thing to, for it to stay fun to kind of drive you forward. You have to enjoy it. Yeah. Right, so. Well, so let's talk about, I think this is related. Mm. The storytelling component. Doesn't that kind of make people analytics fun and meaningful is yeah. being able to tell a story with data? And I, I think you are kind of like one of those people out there I consider to be uniquely good at this. So oh, thank you, you. can you talk a little bit about if I don't even know if there is, is there any kind of like method to your madness and how you do that? <laughs> I mean, so like first of all, stories are memorable, right? I mean yeah. people people remember stories more than they remember statistics. Um because there's like an emotional connection. It's fun. It's interesting. And yeah. so um, I, I enjoy kind of crafting the stories, bringing in anecdotes, examples, things like that. Um, but using data to kind of power those stories, it's, it's incredible. Like the, the, the so like, how do you do that though? Like how do you use data to power a story? Cause so, I think that's the part where everybody goes, I know data, I know story, but I don't know how to make data do story. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a really good question. So being on a people analytics team, um, one thing I always say is that unfortunately as a team, like we are in a position where we often lack a lot of context. Okay. Unless yeah. you Absolutely. deliberately speak to people to get a sense of what's going on and get more context. 
It's not saying that we can't be aware of context and get great at that. It's just that our position doesn't necessarily set us up for success automatically, right? Yeah. Um, it, we do have a unique superpower that we have a ton of data. We know the pros and like the limitations of that data as well. And so if you start with that framing and you speak to the right people, get a really good understanding of what their problem is, where they're coming in, where they're coming from, what their motivations are, um, you're in a very good position to weave those two things together. Yeah. Um, and it really starts with like understanding audience motivation. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> this is the best pot ever. This yeah. is good. Yeah. Coming over waiters. Getting so. offered drinks, offered food. Well, I think I think that that plagues a lot of people at X functions. You're removed from the business. You yeah. don't necessarily know what's going on, or in a lot of cases, how the business is making money. Yeah. But you are in charge of uh, setting initiatives to yeah. <laughs> change the org. Yeah. Well, would you say that linking the data to the story is like hunting for truffles, perhaps? Hunting for truffles? Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it is. It is. Yeah. Because when you find that perfect connection, everything just lights up. I like, I like how you wove the truffle stuff in there. Yeah. Well, you want to talk about truffle hunting at all? Yeah, sure, man. Um, okay. So we'll, Cole, <laughs> Cole and I were talking behind the, before the podcast. Um, <laughs> This is funny because this is something that I haven't started doing yet, but I'm just like oh, insanely pre- passionate about it. Okay. Yeah. So in, in a few weeks, we're going to get a dog, my wife and I. Um, it's a Logoto Romagnolo. It's an Italian water dog. They're originally trained uh, to retrieve fowl for hunting. Mm-hmm. They drain the marshes in Italy, and then they had to find a new job for the dog. So they, Why did they drain the marshes? I don't know. That sounds sad. That's a, that's a good question. Yeah, okay. Probably for farming, it's, it's I think. It's a tough time for everyone. Come yeah. On. No, we don't. Nobody we wants drink. marshes. There's no more water. <laughs> <laughs> love that marsh I'm water. Sorry, we're going off on a way <laughs> tangent here. I also love that you import a dog from Italy. Like. Yeah. So the, the, um, the, the parents of the dog that we're getting are actually from Serbia. Um, they're, uh-huh. they're a moderately rare breed, though. Um, and so anyway, like, you had all these unemployed Lagotos. Uh, and so they, they, they retrained them to hunt for truffles in the countryside in Italy. Really? Because they have a really, really good nose. They're very trainable, technically, and, and they don't eat the truffles as well. Yes. Like, farmers would use pigs to hunt for truffles originally because pigs, like, pigs are them. vicious creatures when it yeah. comes to eating stuff. They're, they're, they're going to eat those species. truffles fast. Yeah, exactly. So Lagotos are good at it. Technically, you can train any dog to do it, but Lagotos are, are they pick it up well. Okay. So, so like, is there like a soil condition that promotes truffles or like, are they where you live even? Or are you just like open to find them? Or? So they're all over Northern California. They're really? all over the Pacific Northwest. They're everywhere. The reason why they're so hard to find though is because they grow as like nodules on tree roots. Anywhere between like a few inches beneath ground to like, I think... Uh, a few feet yeah. the ground and so that's why they're hard to find you need a dog who or, or a pig really good at knowing the scent and then can dig and, and find them essentially and so when i get this this lovely puppy i'm gonna how do you train do you, them to to hunt how how like i don't, I don't understand the process like I, I i was able to train my dog to get beers from the fridge and like close the door and this sort of thing but it <laughs> seems equally that hard. seems yeah <clears throat> well i mean impressive. you're training a dog to find like closing something. the door part's the hard part i'll show you a video yeah, sure. i'll show you a video but like how do you train a dog to find something under the ground <laughs> to like give him like the scent of a truffle and be like go, go exactly. find something like that, that. sounds like their that's fantasy I get to dig under the ground. <laughs> yeah, that sounds yeah. amazing. Yeah, that's exactly what you do. Um, they have different like training oils for dogs. Oh, you okay. can train them to like pick up the scent of specific species of truffles, 
as many as you want, I guess. There's lots of different species of truffles. Um, and then, yeah, they'll eventually like go out and, and find them for you. Who was the first person like see a truffle and be like, I'm going to eat that? You know, because apparently like, it was it they're was, ugly as hell. I know it was pigs who found them and ate them, and the farmers were like, "Oh, what did it find?" And they're yeah. like, let, "Let me try." This pig tastes good. Yeah, <laughs> it tastes like truffle. Delicious. I do like truffle fries. Absolutely, yeah, truffle fries are like amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, how how'd you get into this? Like, what what spurred this? We we wanted a dog, honestly, doing research, and ah. I'm I'm allergic to dogs. Lagotas are, are hypoallergenic, oh, nice. and so then I started reading more about the breed, and I was like, oh my god, this sounds fascinating. <laughs> I just have to start doing this. I love hiking. I love being outdoors, and like this just seemed like the perfect thing. So I love the totally random hobbies here. This is great. I have I have weird hobbies. Yeah. How many Waffle Houses have you been to? How many Waffle Houses I've been to? Yeah. Do you even know what a Waffle House? Yeah. Is? Do they even have Waffle Houses where you live? Do they have waffle houses in Canada? Not really, no. Uh-huh. Wait, hold on. What's what's the definition of a waffle house specifically? I think this proves a waffle that house is a is. restaurant. <laughs> I know it's I know it's a restaurant. <laughs> okay. They exclusively serve waffles, and that's it. They serve other no, stuff they, too. It's they, a very unsavory place. Cole worked mm. at the waffle yeah. house. Oh yeah, for a little bit. The waffle house. Well, a waffle house, not okay. the waffle house. The great thing with the waffle house is like, okay. is it good? No. Okay. Like, is it clean? No. <laughs> like, are, are, well, is the waiters friendly? No. No. <laughs> no. So I'm waiting it, for the is good it great? Part. It's awesome. It's just an, it's a cultural experience. It, it is a like. cultural experience. Okay. okay. Very much so. I don't think I've been to a Waffle House then. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> if if I was like to go to... to one, where would you recommend I go? Any I mean, of them. They're any, all the same. They're, they're <laughs> all the same. They're all built exactly the same. The same people go into it. Yeah. It's amazing. It might be the same old crotchety woman that works at every single one. She might have clones. <laughs> they just cloned yeah. her and employed her at every single one. Okay, well, I'm going to go. Our version of the Waffle House is we are going to give you two options, and we never really go into this side, but the idea is to like eh, have one opinion and then try and find a way to balance it out eventually. Yeah. Kind of waffle on it. Oh, I see. Okay, I'm very good at waffling. Okay, good. Let's do it. Good. Okay. Sounds so like the perfect decision scientist. It's it's a it's a Canadian trait. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Hey. Oh, oh wait. Oh, oh, there we go. Thank you so got much. drinks. Thank you so much. Well, this is our first time drinking on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Give so, a little cheers. 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 Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thank, Thank you, you so much. You. All right. Well, you're getting us the high high bar stuff. Yeah. All right, Nicholas. Uh, okay. This is for you to waffle on. Would you rather have a team of data scientists with no business acumen? Or a team of business analysts with no data science skills. Too close to home, man. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh shoot. That's all. I, I actually love this question. Um. <laughs> That's called a Monday. <laughs> okay, so this is called reality. Yeah. There, it, it it depends. Okay, so. Personally, in, in, if I was to choose one or the other, like outside of context, yeah. I would love to have a team of data scientists because I have a little bit of skill in that space, but having a team that's way better than me at doing stuff that I can't do, so powerful. And I'd be happy to kind of like layer in the business context and coach and, and stuff like that. Um, it, I would, if, if I have like crazy demands on my team and the organization and... We need to be able to scale to stakeholder needs. I can't put data scientists with no business acumen in front of stakeholders. Yeah. And so I'd much rather have a business analyst who has some, you know, Excel savvy, some stats savvy, and knows how to communicate effectively to be able to kind of like take off some of that work and we, we walk before we run. So, I mean, 
both both are interesting both, both realities. You're waffling. I can feel it. Like, what, yeah. what, what would you waffle on? Uh, I, I, th- I think that you're on to something there as far as like it, you can teach a little business acumen or provide it. Yeah. Uh, but trying to teach the data science skills is a yeah. much bigger uphill climb. And at the same time, uh, you know, we shit on like Excel and this sort of thing, but you can do a lot in Excel. You mm-hmm. totally can, yeah. You, you can do as a lot. As long as it's not repeatable, right? Yeah. That's our, our constant yeah. PSA. Yeah. You know, if you're doing repeatable work. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, like, once again, like, the whole goal of measurement and analysis is to reduce uncertainty. And even if yeah. you can just do that a little bit, you gain some advantage there. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if I take the other side of it, just for waffly sake? Well, I mean, if you want to be that way. Waffle away. One of the things that, and again, this might be just limited to my experience, but I find that people nowadays at least in like the last five to ten years learning data science is considered really sexy yep and so if you have business acumen that's what the ladies tell me (laughs) it's not what they tell you Um, said no one ever (laughs) and so i find that like actually having the business acumen is the most ideal thing because people are probably going to want to learn the data science anyway whereas the data scientist may never want to learn the business acumen like yeah. They just don't find it intellectually yeah. stimulating. What with like uh, generative AI now, like the data science the element is getting like entry. really, yeah. Yes, very much really, lower. You can just go and ask like, hey, how do I do this in Python? And if you have the business acumen, you know what the company is actually doing, you need some minor coding skills, but still. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You need to know how to set up Python, which is... Set up Python? Just a pain in the ass. Trying to set up the right instance of Python, the the right version, um, I find that's that was more difficult than actually you're, learning, learning how to write the code. You're my uh, spirit animal. You want to shit on Python real quick? I mean, <laughs> I, I can shit on the the setup of it and how many like getting the coding environment set up was the most difficult part, honestly. And then running running the code and writing the code is a lot easier, I find. I mean, just because we're talking about the AI, generative AI, and the jobs being taken over, you want to talk about uh, the jobs that are safe from yeah so what what are the jobs that are the safest from generative ai we have an article it's called the jobs ai won't take it's from the bbc and it it goes through a lot of different ups and downs but essentially it comes down to things that are like socially oriented in nature like a like a nurse or like a social worker you've got kind of like the technical trade skills like a plumber and then um there's one more I'm forgetting, Scott. Creativity. Creativity. People, yeah. So that's the one I took issue with because I think they're actually finding a lot of the generative AI is pretty good at creative tasks. So right. jobs that artificial intelligence will not take. So creative jobs. I, I feel like actually what we're seeing with generative AI is it's, it's actually doing a lot of creative things already. So I'm not sure that it won't replace some of the creative jobs. I, I think you had a... A comment on that, Scott. Uh, yeah, so I mean, they've already seen that, like graphic designers or like uh, these sort of folks, they're already being replaced by just absolutely. Have you ever looked at this? Like, get like your photo taken and like uh, like a selfie, it'll yeah. change the images, all yeah, this sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Like, I think that's that's done. That's done. Yeah. Uh, things like music are a little bit more intriguing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do have a rant about this. Like, well, let's rant. Okay, so in the 80s, like when MTV first came out, like the music was freaking fantastic, right? Wait, is this a rant about MTV not playing music anymore? No. Okay. <laughs> However, that is a valid rant. That is a valid rant. 
But like, uh, this is the first time we actually got to see the artists really in the, you know, wide. And they were fucking ugly. They were yeah. ugly and the music was great. And then slowly they were on yes. TV more and more and the music got worse and worse and they got prettier and prettier yep. to the point now where the music is kind of shit and people are beautiful and no, no one knows how to play an instrument anymore. Except for Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran is still piss <laughs> ugly. He's not, not but the, he has a beautiful voice. But I, I think we're going to see, like, everyone wanted to be a DJ, like, 10 years ago now. Like, yeah. like no one plays a guitar anymore. No one plays drums that I know of, anyway. Um, but I think we're going to see this more and more. Like, so, like, now you can have, like, a variety of beats. Or just tell uh, generative AI, like, hey, create a song about, you know, um, me on a mountaintop. Whatever you, whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I think we're going to see an exponential growth in shitty music from this journey of AI. Maybe. I mean, maybe we'll see a new occupation like prompt music, like prompt musician, (laughs) (laughs) which is really good at coaxing the right tunes out of it. it. Or you get like very specific, like songs tailored just to you. Yeah. Maybe that's why all the DJs wear the mask over their head so they can still be ugly. Oh, uh, Dirty Mouse or whatever his name is. Dead Mouse. Dead Mouse. Great Canadian artist. Come on, guys. Oh, is he Canadian? He's Canadian. Yeah, he's from Toronto. Is he? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, cheers. Cheers. Cheers Cheers. to Dead Mouse. Canada. (laughs) Yeah. Welcome. Thanks, guys. Are you a Senators fan? No, I'm not a Sens fan. I'm not much of a hockey guy. Really? Really? Maple Leafs? Is that a thing? It's dangerous to be a Leafs fan, apparently. I didn't know that. They haven't won like I don't know. Think about years. They don't win very much. Yeah. I don't think the stars do either. But... Well, I only know when the they're good because all of a sudden all the green comes out around Dallas. I'm like, oh, I guess the stars are good. Like, I, I, remember, I remember the stars. I used to play uh, NHL 95 as a kid. Hell yeah. That's the last time I remember nice. playing as the Dallas stars. I remember playing NFL 95. Oh yeah, those are like <laughs> great games. Yeah. yeah, Sega Genesis. They've released one every year. Sega Genesis, nice. man. Nice. I remember when the N sixty four came out, and I was like, "This is just mind blowing." Legendary. Different. Yeah, everything's in three D. Super Mario sixty four. It's crazy. Goldeneye. I yeah, Goldeneye. Lost some relationships due to Goldeneye. Have you Have you gone back and played Goldeneye? Goldeneye since? holds up. It does not hold up. Yeah, the controls up. are the worst. <laughs> They're frustratingly clunky. I, I make you really appreciate the current state of games. It was it was transformative because it was the first first person shooter game, right? Yeah. And that's why people were addicted to it. The first multiplayer. Call of Duty owes yeah. Goldeneye so much. Oh, for totally. For all of those. Yeah, all yeah. Of those. yeah. I remember oh, I played uh, NHL '98. Like it was going out of style, and like uh, I was like, man, the graphics will never get better. And like two two thousand. <laughs> Two, oh, how wrong you were. Yeah. Oh, 2003, like, uh, I had a friend that had a PS2 at the time. And I was like, yeah, I got this PS1 game. It'll play on your thing. Here, you you can have it. Like, I don't want it anymore. Yeah. And, like, he he uh, loaded it up. It's like, everyone took a triangle and a block. And I was like, oh, my God. This is horrible. <laughs> yeah, that's not good at all. Um, do you want to do some um, harder science for a second? Yeah, sure. What are you going to go for? Uh, so there's a, a new, I think it's a new article from Kyle Bradley and one of my personal famous, Herman McGinnis. Herman McGinnis uh, is one of the most prolific researchers. Dude is a machine. Yeah. He is an absolute machine. So this is an organizational science. Uh, the article is called Team Performance, Nature and Antecedents of Non-Normal Distributions. And, and so I'll just do kind of a quick synopsis of it. 
Whereas a few years ago, and Scott and I have talked about it on the podcast many times, they, uh, O'Boyle and Aguinness about, you know, individual performances. No, it, they actually found it's not normally distributed. It, it goes according to a power law. Well, they've continued that line of research to team performance. And so the article says, you know, team research typically assumes that team performance is normally distributed. Teams cluster around average performance. Performance variability is not substantial, and a few teams inhabit the upper range of the distribution. However, what they found is within, I think it's 73% of teams, that actually a non-normal power distribution fits the model better than, I think, 11% actually fit a normal distribution. Yeah, only 11% actually fit a normal distribution. So again, I feel like this is, you know, turning the table over on a lot of historical psychological literature on teams, just like the Guinness and O'Boyle did for individual performance. What are your What are your all thoughts on this? I, I had a chance to kind of scheme this with the plan over here. Um, one of the things I noticed is that their sample skews pretty sports heavy. Yeah, they looked at a lot of sports teams, which is also um, a criticism of the original articles. Right, well. right, and it's it's not all sports teams. So yeah, I mean, you know. It, that's that's one thing, but I mean, if I think about like applying this to an organization, um, and you guys probably know way more about sports than I do, so correct me if I'm wrong here. But if a team doesn't do super well year over year, I mean they they stay around, right? But in an organization, they get if, fired often. They get like the team as a whole, or like or, no, like, they don't get disbanded though. Yeah, right. Okay, okay. They don't. Yeah, they don't get disbanded. Well, well I mean, you could be like relegated in under in other leagues, you're like European soccer yeah. or something like that. Okay, yeah. so you can drop down a league. Not in America. Not in America. Okay. okay. So my, my thought was that in organizations, if you're actively performance managing low-performing teams out, mm-hmm. um, that's going to essentially boost your mean performance, right? And so those exceptional teams are going to be slightly less exceptional in the total distribution. Well, how and often is a whole team at work even fired? Usually well, I mean, it's just the underperforming members of the team. If you If you look at performance of individuals in the okay. organization, right? You, you performance manage on individuals, your mean level of performance is going to basically go up after you remove the outliers in the bottom yeah. of the distribution, right? And so, I mean, I was just thinking like, I think it depends on like the kind of work being done, depends on the setting. Um, and the, I know they have a, a few kind of like moderating and boundary conditions they look at there yeah. too, but um, it's it's an interesting article. Um it is it is interesting. So they uh, identified two hundred thousand teams and five hundred thousand employees. So that's if if each person is only represented once, that's three person teams, yeah. uh, which isn't uh, uh, really reasonable. And they have uh, sports teams, firefighters, politics, all sorts of stuff. Hmm. Um, floor effects is a thing too, because like you can yeah uh, even in an organization like a team could start and like their whole project just blows up. Yeah, right. Like no, nothing happens or like they just I've been on these sort of teams, too. It's like we have a great idea. And you go through like a meeting. It's like, OK, it's a planning meeting. Yeah. And you go to another meeting. It's like it's a planning meeting. A third one. And after a while, you're like, fuck this. Like, I'm not even going to attend these anymore. Like, what are we doing? Like yeah. 10 minutes later, like just nothing happens. It all kind of goes away. Um, have you all ever done any sort of teams research? Not really. No, nope, not personally. I, I've, I've done a bit. And like the first question that I have is like, what is a team, especially an organization? Yes. It's like you get these like that's the head scratcher that everyone first comes up to because they always have these like great ideas on how to like measure it. This sort of stuff's like, okay, so are we talking about like, everyone reports to a manager? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember we talked about this with Rob Cross because I actually yeah. had done yeah. a little bit of team research, but I was talking about it was like 50 person teams. And you're like, whoa, what's a team? <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you have to have, I, I can't remember the actual like, IO definition, but it's like yeah. interdependence. Mm-hmm. So, it, like a 50 person team, you have essentially clusters of people, yeah. which are like a sports team. Yeah. Like, even like a football team, like 11 people on defense. That's, yeah. That's still a lot. You're not really interacting with like the linemen or not necessarily interacting with the defenders or yeah. the you, you have a shared goal but you're not direct well you're, you're partially independent on each other yeah i mean if, if you put it that way then like uh all of uh, johnson and johnson is a team yeah you know we have a shared goal. you would hope yeah. you would hope yeah presumably yeah do y'all uh tend to occupy like the same role across teams like i know i'm matrix i'm on like eight different projects right now i get eight different teams do you mean like between organizations that we've worked at or do you mean like uh, like like say like just do you naturally rise to be like the leader of the team or like the like leader emergence the, the, the glue of the team or anything like this never mm-hmm. been criticized or called out for being the glue <laughs> <laughs> not even you, once. you are the fault line yeah <laughs> you're either with me or against me <laughs> i'm kidding obviously I think it depends on how passionate I am about the project. If I if I really care about it, then I'll pull things together. But if, if I'm not, then I don't know. I'm on so many projects that it's it's hard to be like super gung ho about literally everything. Um, but yeah, I think I think I could aptly say normally, unless I'm the cheerleader, which I am capable of, I'm the contrarian. It's usually <laughs> I can I can see I'm that. usually You're the, the one trying to actively destroy the team. Not, no, it's just trying, like, everybody needs a red team. Everybody needs a sounding board. Everybody yeah. needs somebody to, like, you know, challenge the ideas to make them stronger. I, th- I think I played that role pretty well. You're the resident devil's advocate. Yeah, devil's yeah. advocate. Like, being on, like, a really great team is, like, it, it's it, it's almost like when, like, you hit a baseball, like, cleanly with a bat. Like, mm-hmm. it's not even like you did mm-hmm. anything, you know? Oh, yeah. You, like, swing softly and it just goes for miles. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's like you didn't even, like, hit anything. Um it's sort of magic that obviously we're all trying to. What role do you play? Um, Are you the don't... glue guy? I think so. I think so. Like, uh, I, I won't necessarily be the one that coordinates communications or this sort of thing, but like team harmony is probably part of my role yeah. anyway. Everybody gets along. Everyone gets along, but it's it's more than that. It's more than just being like a. Is it a positivity thing? What's up? Is it like positivity, like bringing positivity to the team? Like uh, Rock Cross talks about like energizers, energizer yeah. relationships. I don't think I'm necessarily. That. I, I got this like I want to figure. You're out a low key energizer. Team. You're not like. I like that. I like that. Yeah, you're Lo-fi. not. Lo-fi you're not a cheerleader, but you're like a. Hey, that's guy guy. <laughs> He's pretty cool. Well, it's like okay, like you're not a hockey fan, but like in hockey, you got like plus minus rating. So like if you're on the ice and a goal goes in, you get a plus. If you're on the ice and a goal goes uh, doesn't go in. doesn't go, uh, you get scored on. Okay. Yeah, you, okay, you get a minus, uh, and while it may not be your fault, you do have an aggregate. Like, okay, you're a plus thirty guy, so yeah. like you tend to be on the ice when goals are scored. You may not have been the guy that got the assist. You may not have even got the guy that got the goal, but you're probably doing something. I have a theory right? on this, by the way. Oh, please! Which is kind of a callback to the Ethan Burris episode. I thought about bringing it up then, but I forgot because we were talking about the last dance with the Bulls, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Robert Ori. Maybe one of the top ten best basketball players ever, and no one's ever heard of him because <laughs> of the he, team. He's right? got seven NBA championships. He may even have eight <laughs> from different teams, and he's a glue guy. 
He's a glue guy, and he comes in. He's always like a sixth or seventh man off the bench. And all the teams he went to ended up winning an NBA championship, Bulls being Perfect. one of them. Perfect example right yeah. there. He's got to have a high plus and low minus. And, like, mad props for being in Chicago and yeah. bringing up the Bulls. Scott, oh, Scott, yeah. Scottie Pippen, too. He would have been a superstar. Absolutely. Had he not had Michael Jordan on his team. Well, actually, they ran that experiment because Michael Jordan left and Scotty went to other teams and they didn't do very well. But they, they Robert both Ori, they both got old. Dude. But Robert Ori went to other teams and they won championships. <laughs> I'm telling you, it all comes down to Robert Ori. So is there, is there a good way that they have of, of measuring like that that kind of glue position in sports teams? No, to identify. No, them? no. I, I've been thinking about this quite a bit. It's like one of the things I want to do. I, I do a bunch of network analysis work, and I got this yeah. idea, and I've, I've ran it past several people, and they essentially say I'm describing the Energizer, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. It's something different. It's something. It may be only something you can figure out after the fact, which is no fucking help to anybody. Yeah. But. And this is kind of like my point. I I always think about who are the people that are are like electric, right? Who are the electric Mm. people that, you know, some people call it charisma or magnetism and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's like some people just make stuff happen. Yeah. yeah, Just by their existence. There's no tradecraft. They're not their behaviors. You know, it's just their existence. Yeah. And like, I am so curious about that. And they're, as far as I know, again, other people have come on the podcast and told me there's research about this, but I haven't seen it. So it's like bears. I've never seen one. I don't know if they it's, exist. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like idealized influence and transformational leadership theory. Yeah. Right. I mean, the best we have is is other ratings of that. Yeah. Like leadership being a process what of social influence. Like, yeah. What is it? Like, can we distill it? Yeah. Can we good- bottle it? It's, it's a good question. It's like, it's one of those things that like, you know, it when you see it. Yeah. But it's, it's hard to break it down to certain behaviors. I think, Yep. it's the kind of personal brand that you bring to those behaviors, so to speak, that just kind of like clicks. Yeah. What I'm saying is Scott is the Robert Ori of this podcast. <laughs> I mean, like I'm offended, but also like, please. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's also, the other that's one. like the ultimate compliment, by the way. Yeah. I don't know. You just win championships. <laughs> For me, it is. <laughs> That's as high as Cole yeah. goes. I just told you, I think he's like the best basketball player in history. Like, I'm saying you're the best basketball player in history. Based on what you're saying, it sounds like a compliment. Yeah, I, have, yeah. I have no idea that was a non-sports fan. <laughs> no one knows who Robert Rory is, or very few people. Like, he's not like a legend like Michael Jordan or something. Okay, okay. Well, uh, you want to move on to something else? Something yeah. that I'm excited about. Um... Nicholas, do you ever get like excited about like methodology? Like you see something like you're like, damn, that's super cool. Hell yeah. Talk to me about latent profile analysis. It's my oh, favorite. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. How do you use it? Or- so uh did it for my dissertation. Um, I used it at work in two different ways recently. So first one is uh, I built profiles of candidates who were attracted to the organization based on what their interests were, like in terms of like how certain interests cluster together yeah, yeah, and found basically like certain people prioritize um, job security and work-life balance, like kind of as a, as a group versus other individuals who prioritize like the brand of the organization plus compensation, plus working with coworkers who are, you know, exceptional at their job. And those interests really kind of clustered and then they actually varied based on the kinds of jobs people applied for. So that was kind of an interesting, interesting finding. This, the second way was, um, looking at burn, uh, burnout and engagement profiles. So measuring those separately. Yeah. The two constructs don't actually correlate that well. Um, and so we're able to find, you know, profiles of individuals who can be simultaneously engaged, but also showing signs of burnout. Um, 
and then people who are low on both and well, yeah, so wild. two two examples of that. That's yeah. that's super great because like the reasons why someone may be burned out could be totally different. And we, we tend to think about it like from yeah. a linear perspective, like, oh, just you got more of this attribute than yeah. it's it like two factor theory, satisfiers and dissatisfiers are yeah. different scales kind of thing. Burnout exactly. and engagement are different scales. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I have gone down the rabbit hole on this psychometric network analysis. Okay. Uh, it's kind of a funny story. So, like, I met somebody in, like, 2014 who wound up being, like, she was, she was a grad student at the time. She wanted to be a professor at Georgia. And last year at PSYOP, she was sitting around the bar. She's like, here, you need to talk to uh, this other researcher. Name's Megan Lowry. We'll yeah. be on the pod. Doesn't matter. And she's like, well, know, yeah. Megan. She's great. She's great. She's yeah. great. Uh, she just published a, she's like second author on this. JAP. Uh, JAP. There you go. Yeah. And yeah. essentially you're treating uh, individual survey items as nodes in a network to see the intercorrelations among them. Okay. And this particular article, uh, which I don't know, do you have the title in front of you? What's it called? I got the one that you sent. Yeah, that, that's what Architecture and relationships among cognition, mental health, and other human domains revealed by network analysis perspective. Perfect, perfect. Thank you so much. So, like uh, cognition, personality, mental health, all these sort of things, they're typically studied separately, but they're all linked in your same brain, right? So, they, they, they got to be somewhat interconnected. You would expect them to uh, have some interplay there. Like, the only thing that we really think about from this perspective is like openness to experience and cognitive ability. We know that those two things are correlated. Uh, but what we've actually lacked is like a flexible methodology to study the interconnections across them. So they use this psychometric network analysis. Uh, I've also seen the literature called uh, causal attitude analysis is what Megan Lowry's uh, JEP article is about, okay. as well as uh, this is called exploratory graph analysis. Uh, there's also an extension Bayesian network approach, which they're all mean essentially the same thing. Yeah. Your, uh, treating Somebody it. had to get tenure by creating a new variant of it. I agree. I think it's all <laughs> going to correlate into the same thing. But essentially, you run a uh, lasso regression. You get these partial correlations. And those are the links in between these items. And you can then run uh, specific network analysis uh, metrics on it. So centrality, community detection, all these sort of things. And they had this like massive database of responses to a variety of metrics uh, related to cognition and substance abuse and uh, personality, et cetera. And using this methodology, once again, you can do community detection. So kind of like your latent profile analysis, uh, you understand like kind of clustering. And so they came up with seven broad domains, which are uh, mental health, pain, delayed discount task, discounting task, high cognitive, high cognitive functioning, low cognitive functioning, externalizing problems, and substance abuse issues. Interestingly, they came up with a high cognitive functioning and low cognitive functioning, which kind of flies in the face of like Spearman's gene or like Garner's multiple intelligences, right? It's somewhere in the middle there. Uh, Let's see, anything else there? Uh, GC, uh, uh, crystallized intelligence was the main connecting uh, between this connector. At the highest. Oh, you are so excited. Oh, I I I fucking love it, man. (laughs) I fucking love it. And it's it, it it makes sense because like this is central to all your experiences like that's what crystallized intelligence would be, uh, bu- 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 and then it also shows uh, they have confirmatory results uh, seen in uh, clinical patients as far as substance abuse and uh, personality disorders and this sort of thing. Okay, I, I'm so jet like the findings of this are great and everything, but like I think this is a fantastic new frontier that we haven't really used for survey research. 
Can I ask a really dumb question? I have a dumb question too. You go first. Please bring it. How different is this from like confirmatory factor analysis? That was my question, except for exploratory factor <clears throat> analysis. Yeah. After you run a lasso regularization, you get rid of the variables that aren't really intercorrelated with stuff. Yeah. yeah. You got to reduce set. Great. Um, you're not overfitting. But then you're looking at the interdependence between those clusters. In an EFA, you can also look at the factor intercorrelation as well, right? This, but how does a network graph differ from like latent variable It seems like you would show very similar findings. Like I would love to run the same data sets side by side and see what you would find with the EFA, CFA, and then this psychometric yeah. network analysis, whatever you call it. So, so there are similarities, and it does kind of perform like a factor analysis where you do find these like communities and this sort of thing where you kind of see how the different items group together. But What's interesting is the results are different, though, than what you would expect with the EFA or CFA. So that's the curious part to me. A bit. And like anything else, it's dependent upon like the variables that you put into the model. Yeah. You know, so like you put different things in, like certain things are going to become more central than others. But that's sort of like the great thing that you apply the network analysis metrics to it on top of sort of just separating things out. You can see uh, interrelationships between different uh, variables that wouldn't necessarily pop out in a typical analysis, right? So um, uh, imagine like an element of burnout mm -hmm. may show up next to an element of personality, which you wouldn't necessarily study those together. You would think of it as a like hierarchical structure. Okay, but okay. you can see that the individual elements would connect well, I guess, again, the other side of it, wouldn't that, that doesn't make nominological sense for those two things to be together necessarily. So couldn't that perhaps just be error? Like, couldn't it be like methodological error that the fact that that's happening? Well, I mean, like errors inherent to everything, yeah. Yeah. right? Um, I think running the, running the lasso as a pre-step prevents overfitting, which yeah. would minimize like spurious mm -hmm. relationships like that, presumably. By the way, first psychometric network analysis reference and first lasso reference on the podcast so this is this is good stuff technically it's g lasso which is uh, i haven't quite wrapped my mind around exactly what that is yeah okay but yeah i mean then we can be start talking about ridge regression ridge or ele yeah. uh, electric net yeah Ela elastic net. elastic yes yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah well is this the point where we've officially gone off the rails <laughs> i think we're pretty far down the route yeah yeah nicholas this was experimental, to say the least. It was definitely experimental. <laughs> I enjoyed it, though. This is this was good. And for context, for those of you who are listening, because we probably cut this up by this point, we were in a room to do happy hour, and then the happy hour just got boisterously loud, so we moved to another room, but you can still kind of hear it in it's the background. It's still incredibly loud. But we're at the Talarios conference. This has been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed the heck out of it, Nicholas. Any, any parting words for Nicholas Scott? Oh, Nicholas, uh, you're a minch of the highest order. Uh, a Canadian minch. A, a Canadian, Canadian minch. A truffle minch. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Uh, let's see. Do, do you have any limericks or anything? <laughs> any, any limericks? Any Canadian limericks? <laughs> Are you a poet? <laughs> yes, one of my hidden talents. <laughs> uh, well, another one you're hitting Dallas for. <laughs> Aren't you a mixologist? How was your drink? Is it good? Oh yeah, yeah. How does this how's the drink? Uh, it's it's okay. Um, oh no, no, no! That is the worst criticism that can come out of a mixologist's mouth. This is yeah. not a power distribution. Yeah, yeah. This, it was it was my COVID hobby. Um, fortunately, unfortunately, is is getting into into making drinks. Since then, um, 
yeah, I've, I've made a lot of, so I, I've got a couple of friends. We, we collaborate on making cocktails. Yeah. There's a place here in Chicago called the Aviary. They make these insane craft cocktails. Mm-hmm. And so there's a book they released. Um, every few months we get together and choose one cocktail from this book. It'll take us two to three days to prepare the ingredients for it. Oh, wow. Like using an immersion circulator to infuse like nectarine and to, and to remove um, making popsicles made of like mezcal, watermelon juice, and barbecue bitters, all this sort of stuff. And then we'll host parties and have friends over and stuff. You had a very um, different COVID than I did. This I mean, is we, amazing. We, by we, the way. we didn't host the parties during yeah, COVID, yeah. but we do now. Um, but I developed a lot of that kind of like interest and you know, uh, skills and content making during that. Like so. you're also doing like diamond cutting too, right? Diamond cutting? Oh, I you mean like diamond cutter, like Diamond Dallas Page, like you know, professional wrestling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I so to to pay for my undergraduate education, I worked as a diamond drill helper during the summers. Diamond oh, drill, shit. diamond drill helper. Yeah. So if you think about the mining industry, you have prospecting as the first step. Like, hey, is there going to be something here? And then mining companies basically take the land, and then we do exploratory drilling to determine if there is an ore body there. And so if there is, then they actually set up a mine and they start mining. I worked for a company that would do exploratory drilling. We'd have a drill rig. We'd drill holes in the ground um, up to a kilometer or like for the American listeners, like half a mile. Six miles. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah. Into the earth at different orientations. How many and knots was it going? <laughs> 14, 14 knots <laughs> in, in trajectory. Like you drinking their, drinking their milkshake, as you talk about in... Uh, I drink your milkshake. Yeah, I drink your milkshake. Uh, there, there will be blood. Oh, uh, no, I haven't seen it. Famous that. movie. They're drilling oil. They're going in sideways, like other people's land. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, no, I didn't do anything like that. For sure. So, can we call you Drill Bit Bremner from now on? Yeah, sure, man. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> whatever whatever <laughs> floats your boat. I feel like that would fly in the oil patch. I don't know. Yeah, anyway, that was might. stupid. All right, I'm going to quit talking now. <laughs> All right, <laughs> you've been listening directly correct with people. <laughs> Strong finish. All right, uh, we're gonna keep going. We're gonna power through this. I'll wait for that Limerick. What is the Limerick? This uh, was a man from. There once was a man from Toronto. He's like, okay, that's fair. Right, 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 hold on, isn't a Limerick two rhymes, a non-rhyme, and then a rhyme? I have no idea. Oh, you got I think that's a haiku, right? No, haiku is it's a number of three syllables, syllables five syllables, three syllables, or something like that. A limerick, I think, is two rhymes, a non-rhyme, and then a rhyme again. I think. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Is it like an Irish thing? The only reason why I know that is because they do them on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is an NPR oh, show. that's right. They do. Okay. And so then they make the person guess what the last word is because it's supposed to rhyme with the earlier words. It always throws people off because the line before doesn't rhyme. Uh, that makes sense. So... Once man, a man from Canada. We need we need journey. Oh yeah, let's do a little journey. Let's get ChatGPT to write us a limerick. Write me a limerick about Canada. About Canada, yeah. Okay, uh, in Canada, the land of the maple, where moose and beavers frolic and dabble, mountains tall and lakes so grand, vast wilderness, breathtaking land. Oh, Canada. Your beauty is unparalleled. Oh yeah, I've heard that one. That's a good. That's a good one. Oh, it's not yeah. an original. They, they teach oh, us that. Plagiarists. Oh, just kidding. I've never heard that before. Oh, okay. <laughs> Welcome to directly correct. Well you only played, get it here. Sir.
<laughs> well, I think I think that's a good wrapping yeah, point. Good. So, Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People on Looks podcast with Colin Scott and Nicholas Bruner. Thanks for joining us, Nicholas. Thanks, Scott. As always, all opinions are owned and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott.